I'm Laura Vinrootpool of Capital, and this is What We Wore. Anya Highmarch is once again the CEO and creative director of her namesake collection after buying back her business in 2019. I really enjoyed speaking with Anya about the past and future of her company, key advice from her new book, and the courage it took to take control of her company again. I got your book. You you kindly sent me your book and I spent the weekend reading it and I felt so bad for my husband because he kept on coming in the room to ask me questions and I was so annoyed because <laughs> I was so into the book. I started by highlighting and then then I was highlighting full pages and like the whole book was highlighted. So then I just started to turn pages and so the poor book is like pitiful. But <laughs> you're such a star. That's that's a proper homework. It, Oh, Anya, it was it was so good. And um, I, I don't know that I'd ever really had a book that spoke to me so directly, because I think and I, you know, I hate to say this, I don't know, in the South, like, I didn't have a lot of mentors, there weren't a lot of um, women that worked that, you know, I could talk to about all of these things. And it really, really spoke to me. And I think it's a really important book, especially for women who work and, and are entrepreneurs. <laughs> We are that generation. It's what I can't remember. They gave a name to it. It was called the, the transition generation, you know, where we are actually, you know, effectively the first, you know, my mother didn't work in quite the same way and juggle it all. So, you know, we're having to find our own way. So I think that was the, the point of just trying to be kind and sort of sad as it is a little bit, really. So thank well, your staff for reading it. Thank you. <laughs> no, I loved it. Thank you. Where are you from? Are you from the the house where, I, we, where we went to Wiggy's wedding? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know exactly where I'm from. I'm from that house, uh, which sadly we sold actually because my parents got older and they, they wanted to move to London. So oh. we all made a decision about keep or not to keep and we all decided not to. So, um, so yeah, so that was very much where I was brought up. So brought up in the countryside. And were your parents um, entrepreneurs? Yeah. In fact, my, uh, well, my mother was very much helped my father, but my father was the entrepreneur particularly probably. But then all my aunts also have their own business and all my siblings um, and uh, now sister-in-law as well. So it is a bit of an entrepreneurial disease uh, in our family. <laughs> it really is. And then were your grandparents in the picture? Did they live nearby? Um, they did live near quite by, uh, quite nearby. Uh, one set did. And, and we were very close to them, which was very lovely. We were close to all of my grandparents, but um, one set particularly nearby, yeah. Were you always interested in fashion? Yes, I was. I was actually. But in a way, I was interested in how things were made and how things made you feel, I think, more than just fashion per se. But of course, no, absolutely interested in fashion. Um, but I'm still those two things, how they're made and how they make you feel, are, are particularly why I'm interested in fashion, I think. You went to Catholic school with the illustrious Sister Angela. Yeah. I always think girls that go to Catholic school have the best style. I guess because you have to think about it way harder. <laughs> You know, I think the thing is, uniform is interesting because to a certain extent, if you restrict people, they, they become creative with very little. Um, and at school, uh, and mine was a very sort of strict Catholic convent where, you know, we had a strict, we were, we had uniform down to our underwear. Even our school <laughs> shoes were uniform shoes, uniform pants. I mean, it was literally pants, meaning underpants. Yeah. And so, you know, we had no way really of having self-expression, which is a very important thing. And that's what's interesting for me about fashion. Um, so therefore you found a way to, to be yourself through the way you tied your hair or and even that was quite strictly controlled but but through through the stickers on your notebook or uh, you know that just little ways of actually sort of being you know expressing your character so it's kind of interesting in the way it forces you to think quite creatively i think agreed and do you recall the first uh, handbag that you fell in love with well my mother um who was who is still and was always quite a sort of a sort of a, a style pin-up lady for me really in many ways because she always dressed really beautifully a lot of care with how she dressed and um, I remember the bags she used to have and they were sort of quite 
uh, influential to some of my design. I remember being really interested. And she had all these beautiful little sort of thin belts as well, lots of lovely leather goods. But there was a bag that she gave me actually when I was about 16, maybe 15, 16, uh, which was one of her bags, which um, was a bag that I just remember that it made me feel very grown up and kind of very pulled together. Um, and and it was that feeling of how fashion changes to a certain extent your confidence levels that has always been so interesting to me. That's a very powerful thing to be able to do for women. I think when you make, you know, when you put on the right shoes or you put on the right outfit you either feel amazing or you put it on and you just feel all a bit awkward and not quite right and that's the magic I think of fashion and you must see this every day people leaving feeling better you know that's a very special thing to be able to do I think actually that's the goal um, so that's the bit that, well that's more than fashion that's a powerful psychological tool actually and that, that's why I will never have people talk down about fashion as being a frilly subject you know a as a business it's a very very powerful business and employer and a huge boon to the economy but it's also a massively, and it's also an element of art and breaking new ground and so on, but it's also this incredible psychological boost. And I think that's that's a very um, interesting thing. Will you share what you now understand as your first visualization exercise at age 16? So, well, when I was given this handbag, I remember thinking, um, I really want to open a shop. I guess that was sort of my only route to market that I knew at, at that time. And I actually went back to my, um, I was at a boarding school, so to my kind of cubicle, it was my room. And I drew a shop with my name on it, with handbags in the window. And I drew it because I suppose I was dreaming and imagining. But actually, I do strongly believe in that idea of actually, if, if you commit it in a way to paper or to a post-it note in front of your nose or or say it, you're actually much more likely for it to happen. I'm a huge believer in that. So I, I think that was probably my first version of, of the, uh, the creative visualization without knowing it at all. The store that we have in Sloane Street in London, here in London at the moment, um, it's this beautiful corner store. It's very quite a large store on this incredibly famous street, Sloane Street. And um, and I wrote to the landlord saying, I really, really would like to rent this store. And it was I could tell it was coming up soon. Um, and I actually made him, it was Christmas time, I actually made him an advent calendar, um, you know, with sort of, you know, day one to day 25. And on the picture on the, 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 the background of the advent calendar was actually Sloane Street store with my name on it, with all the handbags in the window. <laughs> and then each window that you opened from 1 to 25 was me with a picture holding a sign I mean mad <laughs> saying Sloane Street Anya should be in Sloane Street <laughs> and you want Sloane Street I knew this landlord quite well I think he thought I was either took, he either took pity on me I think probably or just that's hopefully quite sort of quite thought it's quite charming but um again in a way I was sort of manifesting for him in many respects I was giving him that visualization well and speaking of gumption we you talk a little bit about how you had the wherewithal at 18 years old to, to design your first handbag and, and find a manufacturer in Florence? Well, I think it was an interesting time in the UK or even in the world at that point where there was a real movement um, for business. Mm -hmm. um, so in the UK, we had Margaret Thatcher was our prime minister, which is interesting in itself because A, she was a woman, which was you know quite empowering to sort of see a female leader and a, you know the first ever female prime minister. Um, and also, of course, she she used the, uh, the word handbag as a verb to handbag someone. So that was quite <laughs> pleasing for me. But yeah, um, there was a definite momentum to businesses starting. So um, in the UK, there were things like Pret-a-Manger and Carphone Warehouse and Next. And there was just this momentum of businesses, you know, many of whom I, I knew, actually, they were sort of my generation or a little bit older. And it is always that thing where if you see it, you you know, you believe you could be it. I really, I really do believe in that. And so there was this sense that actually if they could do it, I could do it. Um, and I think it was at a time when there was a lot of um, slashing of sort of red tape and there was just like go, go, go. So there was a real movement towards sort of opening businesses. So 
That plus the fact that, of course, I come from this family who all had their own businesses meant that it didn't feel quite as frightening as it as it might do perhaps to, to other people. And I think anyway, when you're young, A, I was, I think I'm probably quite a natural entrepreneur in the sense that I'm quite restless in the classroom, shall we say, and not very good at taking instruction. Perhaps. <laughs> um, also, I um, I just really wanted to start my own business. And when you're young, you have absolutely no sense of fear. I think it's quite a good time to start a business, actually, because you, you know, it's not like you've got a mortgage and three children and you're taking very big risks. You can just get going in a very uh, small way and you learn a huge amount. You know, you learn about invoicing and payment terms and banks and credit notes and, you know, pro forma invoices versus, you know what I mean, you just factoring payments. There's loads that you learn just almost by osmosis as you kind of go through that process. So um, so I think probably a sort of a, an entrepreneurial background, a bit of a movement in the UK and uh, and probably sort of a bit of a um, cocky 18-year-old possibly, <laughs> I ended up just getting going. What was it like getting production done in Italy as a woman? Well, it's interesting with all the sort of Me Too movements and everything that's happened since, when you look back at it through that filter, it's, it's, you know, it was probably quite particular, honestly, because, you know, I was 18, which is crazy young. And you can see that they might not take you seriously as someone who's a customer, which I, I get. Um, equally, though, there were people absolutely who were saying, let's meet you in the piano bar. You know, you're like, no, 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 <laughs> I'm here to try and find a product. So you had to navigate your way through that. And I remember in Italy, you know, I found a way to get samples and then they started copying my designs. And then in the UK, I found a much smaller manufacturer that I could work with. And I remember once he said, come and sit on my, my knee and we'll discuss oh it. You know, so there was definitely quite a lot. But, you know, he wasn't threatening. He was just a sort of funny old man. And, you know, you you find your way through making sure you're not. I mean, it's just it's a shame, isn't it, that women have to go through that. But there was, you know, there's certainly been an element of that. But, you know, it's wrong. Um, but that's how it was. And I navigated my way through and it was it never felt scary. But um different times right yeah different times and then and then how did you get from producing that first collection to actually selling it how did you even know how to do that that's the point I didn't <laughs> I had a suitcase of samples which I schlepped around I faxed a million letters to customers I wanted to sell to um you then try and get someone to write about you so you can sort of say as seen in vogue or whatever <laughs> just add the letter saying you know I have some sort of credibility and then if you get one customer you then say as seen in vogue and sold through this one customer and as you get two customers you're as seen in vogue sold in these two customers you know and then of course you've got to juggle getting the product delivered which is hard because you're always the bottom of everyone's list list with small minimums and then once you get it sold you've then got to juggle being paid and there were an awful lot of people who just then I remember once going to one shop who had my product and hadn't paid me and sitting in the shop and saying I'm just not leaving until you pay me you know which is really uncomfortable um, and it's actually bad how, and it's something I've been on the board of the British Fashion Council for a number of years, actually no longer. But one of the things that, you know, I think that shops should pay these young designers. You know, it's just really dishonest, honestly. And it's one thing you might have, you know, negotiating terms with the really big beasts, but actually with the young ones, you've really got to be responsible. So, um, you know, you learn a huge amount um, and um, and it's the best it's the best business school. I mean, honestly, I think it's, it is better than any business school. And I would I would often argue that you're better to get going than spend all that money on university to then four years later get going. I actually think you learn on the job and, uh, you know, I think that's a good way to, to go if, you, if you're that sort of person. I, I agree. And also I think you, you and I started about the same time and we also maybe 10 years in went through uh, the recession 2008. <laughs> so that, that really was the best business school, right? Yeah, I mean, yes, 
Recessions are tough. And of course, there's nothing good about a recession because so many businesses are lost and jobs are lost, which is tragic. But you learn to run a really tight business. It makes you very realistic. And actually, the, the lesson really is to always run your business to a certain extent as if you were in a recession. Yeah. Uh, it makes for a very um, sharp entrepreneur, I think. And um, so they are horrible. Um, but sometimes it also enables you to make decisions that you might not have been brave enough to do mm-hmm. that actually probably needed doing. So I think there's, um, you know, the, the expression that they offer and say actually is never waste a good recession which is a horrible expression um but it's true it allows you to perhaps be a bit bold and brave um in in actually getting the business in the right shape and you know if something wasn't working and you think i'll keep trying i'll keep trying you actually kind of go you know what let's call it yeah. it's not working so it forces you to to actually make some some good decisions sometimes one of the biggest things for me that came out of it was just making sure that you're working with partners that you want to work with and, and getting rid of the ones that you don't want to work with. And, the, you know, it gets really clear in a recession. You're like, I'm not doing this anymore. For me, partnership, and I've been working well since I was 18 and I'm 55. You, it, partnership is the word. Uh, and the suppliers we've supplied and the, the, the people who supply us, we work really closely with. And there are moments when they might have a cash pinch and we'll help them. There might be moments when we've got a problem because something's faulty and we've got to find a way around, you know, they, they need to remake something quickly, whatever it might be. If you have loyalty and partnership, you can get through most things. And I think, you know, that that's something in, in business you learn. It's the same with anything. It's friendship, isn't it? It's like paying it forward and, and being decent people. And those 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 concessions you make and those um, that good behavior is rewarded, I think. But speaking of partnership, I want to talk about James and how that changed your life, meeting your husband. Well, quite a lot, really. So my husband, um, we've been married for 27 years now. He's 12 years older than me. And when I met him, he had three um, children age one, three, and four, and had tragically just lost his wife, who had um, who had died in an operation that went wrong. So really, really sad situation. And I never met his wife, sadly. But I, when I met him, I knew from the moment I met him that I was going to marry him in that weird way that I don't really believe in at all. <laughs> you know, reformed this family, um, and we had a it took a while before we had more children. Um, but we did have two more children, so we have a family of five children, um, which feels like a family, which is really, really my proudest achievement, I would say, because it really does feel like a family. And I feel very lucky. James joined the business actually not long after, but I think when we were expecting our first child together, and so we've worked together ever since, um, which. Probably drives him quite mad, um, but I quite love. <laughs> uh, not to ask a trite question, how did you balance it? But I guess how did you, how did you learn to? Uh, you didn't know how to balance it in the beginning, and you probably didn't for quite a long time. But how did you start to learn? What were some of the things that changed? I don't think I have to balance it. What is that word? Balance. So you stupid. Talk about? Um, <laughs> I what are you talking about? Dumb question. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that you you do get a balance. I think that you know you go into having children and trying to balance that with a career, and you go into what I call a tunnel, which is for two years you're you know, you just don't have any time to do anything other than just survive, really. And somehow you're spat out of it two years later, which is when you might consider having another child, which is madness, but you do. <laughs> and I think therefore that tunnel, but you know, if you have three kids, it's sort of a six, seven, eight year kind of stage. And it's just like you wake up one day, and go, whoa, look at me, I've gained two stone and I'm <laughs> exhausted. And you know, the house is a mess and all my standards have dropped. Um, but I have hopefully three healthy children. And um, and of course, as you get further away from that, you miss that tunnel like mad, you know, so it's, it's a funny thing. And I think, um, I mean, there's lots of serious lessons. It's why I wrote the book, actually, because the point is you never get a balance and it's really hard and no one's very honest. And I don't think it's very kind to write books going, oh, I did it all and look at me, it's all so easy. It's not easy, it's really hard. Um, And therefore, I think girlfriends need to club together and to share their war stories 
in, and, and how they got through it uh, in a very honest way that makes people feel not a failure when they're not coping because you will be quite a lot of the time not coping, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, running a business is difficult enough on its own. Running a business and juggling children, young children, no sleep and all the things that it throws at you is 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 really hard. And there's lots of things I think um, I, I sort of feel are important. One is that when you have children, don't expect it to be 150% gain. I remember my father saying to me, you've got to focus on the net gain. You know, the gain is 150% because of course it's glorious, but actually the exhaustion, the cost of this or that, it's actually the net gain is probably about 40%. So just don't expect to be realistic. Um, and I think you need to, you know, depending on your circumstances and your responsibilities, but you need to, to, treat it like a project. You know, you are taking on this enormous new project, um, which needs help, staffing, timing. Um, you know, you need to to get flexibility at work, you need to get flexibility at home. And, you know, it needs proper planning. Sometimes you just wander into having a baby, whereas actually if you if you did that acquisition of that new project for work, you would do the due diligence, you would do the planning, you'd have the protocols, you'd have all the, you know, the staffing, you know, you get it all licked. So almost treat it a little bit like that. Um, and then expect that you're going to feel, you know, like you're failing quite a lot of time, but it's completely normal. So surround yourself with people who are going through the same thing so that you have a sort of support team, which needs to be local, realistically. So there's a million, I mean, the, the book talks through every single thing of which there are a zillion tips from, you know, trying to manage having a board meeting when your child wants to go out to a nightclub until four in the morning <laughs> and, you know, with Christmas madness and all of those things that are just quite practical tips, but, um, <laughs> you know, but no, no, no such thing as balance. One of the things I loved was you talking about being at the acupuncturist office um, and complaining about how tired you were and how fatigued and, and that, the, that he said to you, don't complain. Every single one of these things that you're complaining about are things that you chose. It was kind of like, wow. <laughs> it was also the most helpful bit of advice because what it made me realize is that I love being a bit stretched. You know, I've just accepted another um, sort of board that I'm going to sit on, you know, this last week. And I know that's one too many. I mean, I, you know, my portfolio is full, but, you know, I like... I like being busy. I like giving everything I've got. Uh, at times, that certain, totally there's a price to that. But you have to realize what you naturally do. If I didn't want to do all those things, I wouldn't accept them. So actually, sort of therefore, don't complain, really. Um, and I thought that was quite, quite, um, quite sound <laughs> advice from the acupuncturist. I love it. We we talk a little bit about selling the business in 2011 and and why that happened and and how it felt. You know, I had started the business when I was 18, and. It had grown and grown and had 65 stores across the world and lots of wholesale accounts and, you know, you know, quite a, a big team in, in, in London and Hong Kong and Japan and America and so on. And I felt and I was doing both roles. I was doing the CEO role and I was doing the creative role, both two roles I love. Um, and I felt really in a way that I should probably divide the, those two roles into one. And so I ended up taking on a CEO and simultaneously actually bringing an investment to the business and selling a chunk of the business, not the total business, but a chunk of the business. And um, fun enough, that wasn't right for me, actually. Um, there are lots of reasons that some of which are sort of, you know, sensitive reasons to go into. But it, it I actually realized I like running my own business. And um, anyway, long story short, we bought the business back in 2019. And it's been really, really fun. I mean, we brought back a bit of a broken business because often businesses that go through those, those yeah. stages, you know, there's some sort of fallout. But, you know, what the team came back together and we've and all through COVID and all the things that have been chucked at all of us. But it's actually really exciting. Um, and I think that I'm a great believer in keeping founders in businesses as often as businesses grow and scale. There's a tendency for founders to either be pushed out or to sort of decide that they think they need to get in the professionals and bring people in. It can often really change the DNA and the core culture of the company. And I think the thing that is probably the most valuable on a balance sheet of a business is the culture um, and is the um, is the people. 
So, you know, keeping that culture and those people and, and in a way having the founder at the top of the tree and hiring people in that same culture is actually a very, very valuable thing. Um, so what's so lovely is I feel we have that culture back in spades and we're really looking at all the creative touch points of the brand and just really making it exactly what we want from product through to the creativity through to the mad projects that we do. And it, it's, it's really exciting, actually. Interesting that it happened right before the pandemic. Did focus change during the pandemic? No, actually, when we brought it back, my my clear thinking was that having lots of stores all over the world felt a bit cookie cutter in a way. And I think we as a brand are, you know, I think we're sort of quite an authentic brand. You know, it's sort of it's it's not a something that can be replicated and it can, but I think it didn't feel quite right. I also feel it's a more digital world. So we felt quite clearly that if retail is to make sense in a digital world, that there has to be a reason to visit. It can't just be the same as the, the, what you get, uh, you know, what you get online. So we decided to open this, this village, uh, which is this at the site of my very first store in Pont Street in London. Um, we actually have opened six stores and a little cafe, which is that we call it the village rather grandly, um, <laughs> but where we have all of the folk, all of our products. And also the, all the, we have one um, shop, which we call the village hall, which changes every six weeks. So all the sort of mad creativity that we have there. And it's a really lovely hub. So the idea was sort of have that hub have some stores overseas of course but actually and of course partners but actually have a really big push digitally and it felt that that made sense it's interesting it's a slightly different world now so that strategy we established pre-covid and actually managed to to really uh, engineer quite cleanly through um, and it's really working i do think i've slightly changed my mind and i think stores are more important actually and i think that the, the two things go hand in hand um, so you need to have touch points in the markets and that can be wonderful partners uh, or it can be pop-ups but I think you can't just be digital there's something that's just even however good you are at telling the stories I think you do need the to touch things and the touch points and the experience um, in, in some ways as well I agree what changed for you at age 50 that gave you the desire to write the book I'm sure you'd been asked for years and years to write a book I think probably post this buyback, honestly, I, I, I felt it was um, it was not an easy journey that, in all fairness. Um, and, you know, sometimes when businesses become more corporate, which is lucky enough, I've never had to sort of endure. Um, it made me um, realize a lot about myself. I think I, I realized that I knew more than I had thought. I realized that as a woman, it's very easy to sort of think you need to get the professionals in. And in fact, the professionals, professionals have never risked their own money. They've never started a business. They've never gone all out to kind of bring their team with them over the trenches in difficult times. You know, they, there's, there's a lot that you do when you start a business that is not easy to put on paper, but it's actually pretty important. And I realized, therefore, that actually I was as good as those professionals and sometimes maybe even better, actually. And I also realized that as a woman, you tend to naturally do yourself down the whole time and to, um, you know, to, to sort of, you know, have that self-doubt. And I, I realized that actually at 50, you've just got to park that. That's ridiculous. Um, and actually, you know, have it there to keep you safe on your shoulder, but actually turn the volume down and and just trust yourself because actually, you know, you've got this far, it's sort of okay. So I think I wanted to write a book really to say all of that, but also slightly as if it was, um, I suppose, focused on my daughter or my girlfriends to sort of say, listen, it's not easy, but that's okay. And this is all the self-doubt I have um, and everyone has it and therefore you know what we just need to to do well in spite of it and in fact actually I think and the reason it's, it's called it and doubt wash your hair uh, partly because I wanted that word doubt in the title because I think we all think of doubt as a really negative thing but I think we have to reframe that and realize that doubt is actually the thing that drives us on to be the best version of ourselves. Um, so um, lots of all of that stuff plus that lovely quote I love which is from Oscar Wilde which is be yourself the other places are taken <laughs> 
And I think that's a really nice thing to think about as you get to, as a bit older, you realise that actually don't try and be like someone else, just do what you do. And I'm not particularly cool. I'm not too cool, actually. Um, and I'm, I'm quite an introvert and I, you know, I have close friendships. I don't need too many. You know, you start to work out what works for you. And that's that's really fine. And I think just sharing all those those thoughts is, I hope, helpful. That was the point of it. Really. It was really helpful. A big part of our listenership is young designers, entrepreneurs. Can you talk about a few parts of it? Triangle of pain, uh, dinner test, <laughs> and uh, maybe the tightrope system? Uh, so triangle of pain um, is that bit where, for example, when I started my business, where you know you, it's all exciting, you've got your new business cards, and these days your first website you've got your products, um, but you're trying to persuade people to make your things, you're placing tiny orders, you're not making the minimum order quantities, you're a painful customer, you're trying to persuade people to buy things, they don't know you, they don't know whether to trust you, much easier to sell a well-known brand, and you're trying to get paid, which is really hard, as I explained earlier. And those three things are that triangle where I think a lot of businesses are lost, you know, it's no longer exciting, woohoo, my new business, you're actually in the thick of it where you can spend all day just replacing the toner on the you know the photocopier you know machine because you know you get the wrong money to try somewhere else you, can, you know you've just got none of the infrastructure and support and i talked to a lot of people in that stage and just try if you can just not give up that's literally all it takes just don't give up and if you don't give up you'll succeed because you'll get there somehow so just get through that and you do get through that Trust me, there are times when it's really much easier to give up and it's hard and you're seeing everyone else in great jobs. And But if you just don't give up at that point, you'll win. It's very simple. So I think that's important. Tight ropes for me is about communication. And it was never more obvious to me than when we bought the business back. And it was a bit of a broken business. And, you know, we had still some of the, the key team there, but there was definitely a bit, a bit of an exodus. And I just decided just to really over-communicate. So tell everyone what your goal is ring the bell when it goes well, bring out the tissues, have a group cry when it doesn't, just involve everyone, have an open town hall every week saying everyone's about this is what we did, Woohoo, we met that, you know, just be really transparent. And it's much more fun for people, I think, to be in on the journey. So those tight ropes where, um, you know, it's tight between me and my team and my team and my team in Japan and my team in Hong Kong, you just get everyone really close by, really makes a difference, I think. Uh, and what was the third one? Din- you dinner test. I love the dinner test. If you decide to take an investment, and by the way, remember that investment is a bit of a failure, really. Investment means you can't afford to do it yourself, okay? So obviously you take on investment because you want to grow faster than you can afford with your own funds that you're creating. Um, So fine. It is not a badge of honor. It's not, woohoo, I've won an Oscar, I've got investment. Because actually from that point onwards, you are working for someone else, which as an entrepreneur is actually not a good thing. And sometimes you'll have people around your boardroom table saying, I think you're wrong, you need to be doing this. And you know instinctively for your business, because you're living it and breathing it every day, that that's the wrong thing to do. So you either have to spend hours and hours persuading them that they're wrong and you're right without annoying them, or you have to do it partially their way or completely their way. So investment is is painful. Sometimes it's necessary, unfortunately, but don't think it's a, it's an objective in its own right. If you do decide to take investment, um, I suggest the, uh, in fact, I'm going to go further than the dinner party test. I'm going to call it the Sunday lunch test. Okay. <laughs> so would you enjoy giving up your Sunday lunch, which is your day off and your family table to have lunch with this person? Would it be fun? Are you aligned? Do you think in the same way? Do you laugh at the same things? Because the fact is that you will set up a business plan. You'll have them around your boardroom table once a month discussing how you're doing against the business plan and all the ups and downs in the business. But actually, 
the business plan will never go to plan, just 100%, it will never run to plan. So therefore, it might be better, it might be faster, it might be slower, it might be worse, it might be a disaster, it might be incredible. Either way, you need people who are aligned with your thinking. It saves a thousand words. It saves all that explaining because they just automatically get it. So if you can, if you don't need an investor, brilliant. <laughs> if you do, apply that Sunday lunch test and think, do they get it? Do I actually, would I actually go on holiday with them? Do I like them enough? Do they understand? Do they have shared values? It will save a lot of, of trying to then get everyone up to speed. Love that. Uh, one other thing that really resonated with me was your um, realization that fear equals excitement, that your your loathing of public speaking, which I absolutely have. <laughs> Tell me how that came about and 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 how do, how do you get past that every time? I know you, you worked with someone to get past it. Well, and it's funny, there you are doing podcasts and <laughs> me doing a podcast. Public but this isn't, I, don't, I never think, this is so funny because I'm never nervous in a podcast, never, ever. I hate giving a toast. Like I hate, I hate, I mean, obviously I hate giving a speech, but like I could do this for hours on end. It's just a different thing. One of the things that, um, you know, women always have imposter syndrome. They always sort of, you know, they're too harsh on themselves and, and so on and so forth. And I, I think we need to remember to be as kind to ourselves as we would to a friend or a daughter, you know, in evaluating our performance, because often we're just ridiculously harsh. <laughs> I think that when you're scared of something, when someone once said to me, they explained that actually fear and, and excitement are the same emotion. So if you say I'm really scared of flying, you're actually probably quite excited about flying is the truth, but you just need to understand. And you're actually, there's a bit of you that kind of is a bit like, you know, this is quite fun. So actually I realized that my total, I mean, proper fear of public speaking to the point where I would, you know, have palpitations and I couldn't speak and it, it, it was consumed me was actually that, you know, I've realized I actually quite like public speaking truthfully, but I just, I needed to reframe the fear and excitement. So when you think I'm really scared, actually reframe it. Can I go now? I'm actually really excited. Of course, you're scared you could mess up. So that little gremlin on your shoulder saying you're going to mess up, you're going to mess up, realize they're there to protect you. Turn the volume down a bit because actually you probably won't mess up. Um, and, you know, and prepare and be really, when I'm totally prepared for a speech and I know what I'm going to say and I've thought about who I'm talking to and I've, you know, pretty much worked it all through, sort of seen myself in the room and done the sort of visualization, actually I really enjoy it now because actually, I, you know, what I'm going to say is I hope interesting and I'll, I'll make sure it's not boastful or horrible. I would have worked through all of those things that could trip me up because, you know, that's what we do. But I think it's worth thinking about fear and excitement as, as actually the same thing and just really putting your, your head in a slightly different place um, and public speaking was that for me it was utterly terrifying um, and I just suddenly thought you know what I really believe you can change things that you're you're scared of you can sort out so I decided to seek out someone to help me and I, I did this thing called neuro-linguistic programming which is a, a type of therapy where they take you through the trauma which came from the fact that I, I used to sing a lot at school and I once had a terrible performance and they take you through the trauma and they take it backwards and black and white. And, you know, it's just a, I mean, it's kind of clever what your brain does. It's so simple. But actually it washed away the trauma for me. And you could have said, I'll pay you a million pounds and I wouldn't have been able to do a speech. <laughs> and now I can. I don't love it and I'm not great at it, but I can do it. So the fact is you can really apply. Your brain is unbelievably clever. It's a light switch. You can turn it on and you can turn it off and you can, you can, you can get through those things. So um, if you believe you can and you want to, you can and you will. I, I also loved the, what the actress told you to to breathe in 10 and imagine and, and breathe out, imagining sparkles going all over your body. <laughs> well, it's funny. You think about breath is so fundamental. And, you know, yeah. you do a lot of it in yoga. Probably, but, you know, breath is absolutely everything. And if you want to calm yourself down, the first thing you should do is exhale. 
that actually completely calms down your central nervous system. So the first thing you do when you get on a, a massage table or you get onto a plane, you finally made it onto a plane, you've done everything you need to do, or you lie on a sunbed the first day of your holiday, the first thing you do is you go, oh, you know, that's the first thing you exhale. So actually, if you want to calm yourself down, exhaling, breathing out is really important. And you learn, you can really control your emotion and your fear through, through breath. So I, I learned a lot about that out of necessity. So I, I wrote about it in the book. I loved how organization has been so fundamental to to your mental health. <laughs> and, and that you said that I, I would label my children if I could. <laughs> What's the top organizational tip you could give to people with overwhelm at work? I work on a Sunday, I'm ashamed to say, but I have a very busy life work-wise and I have a lot of children. So I tend to use Sunday evening, slightly becoming after Sunday lunch, truthfully, but to clear all the things from my inbox that I didn't manage to get through last week. I, I need to close it down on Friday night. I'm too tired. I need a glass of wine. I'm done. But actually Sunday after lunch, I'm like, okay, back to it. And I've got time to read those things people sent me that I didn't have a chance to to do a deep dive into. I clear all those things that needed four different answers. And I need to speak to that person for, you know, all those things you can't just clear in a second. I look ahead uh, and flush through the week ahead and the months ahead, just think birthday presents, travel, have I told the child I won't be there, all that, that sort of stuff to get ahead. I hate that feeling when you get somewhere and you haven't realized that you've forgotten to tell the child you won't be there sports day because you've got a business meeting or you've got a birthday coming or you're going to dinner and you haven't thought about the present or you haven't worked out what you're going to wear and actually that's coming in the drag case. I hate that being caught on the hop. I find that incredibly stressful and it's, you know, I wish I didn't, but I do. So therefore being organized and being ahead just makes me feel good. I like that feeling. Um, so I use Sunday to do all of that. That's unfortunately central to my my life, but that's because my life is very full. I don't recommend everyone works at their weekends <laughs> at all. But you find it might be that you block out your, your Friday afternoon noon to do that and you find your methods that you that work for you everyone's different I'm a, a, an organizational nut I, I literally study to do systems I, I love looking at different ways of, of being organized and I'm obviously not that good because I tend to work very hard so I haven't nailed it so much so that I can delegate it all to someone else but um, I have no way out other than just making lists being organized communicating a lot in advance uh, I used to have a big huge blackboard painted wall in the kitchen <laughs> for the kids um, you know, ballet bag and sports bag and don't forget your packed lunch. You just to make sure that, you know, you communicate like mad. So it's the only way I can run my life, I'm afraid. It's really sad and not very sexy, but it's just <laughs> how I am. I definitely know you didn't have a prom at the Catholic school at the convent. But <laughs> did you have some sort of marquee event? Like, did you? Yes, I do. So I um, I remember going, there was this thing called the Feathers Ball, which was the kind of the big, like, party at 16 or 17, whatever it was. And uh, and I remember my mother wanted me to put me this, this taffeta tartan dress. It was absolutely Ooh, awful. Cool. But I managed to get some black net underneath and to shorten the front of the taffeta so the black neck stuck out a bit punk-like. And I had these shoes that were from, I remember them vividly, that were red with a high heel and with a, like a sort of zigzag sort of front, like the sort of the cut around the foot was all a sort of zigzag. So it was actually quite punk. And I had um, quite short cropped hair with spikes at the front. <laughs> and I, against my mother's wishes, had some highlights put in, which meant that we didn't speak to each other for a week. Um, so that was yeah, my prom dress, if that's, I love it. that makes sense. It sounds really chic. <laughs> Thank you, Anya. Thank you for having me today. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. Please follow us on Instagram at What We Wore Podcast for additional content and show updates.
queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Queen City Podcast Network.